Hello everyone, welcome. We are the MI guys with IFIOC and we are here to help you improve the outcomes for the individuals, communities, and organizations that you serve. And to help with that, today we are going to be addressing a question that was sent into Tammy and really be talking about this idea of how MI gets into personal life, which is kind of a little bit of a controversial issue uh, out there for those of you that know MI. So uh, if you don't know how to contact Tammy and you are curious and would like us to do a podcast or something, uh, if you would just introduce kind of where they do that and how they do that. Yeah, you can always email me with any questions that you have or even topic suggestions like, well, I'm really confused at, you know, how do I uh, add the stages of change into motivational interviewing? Or how do I use values in motivational interviewing? Or, or I hear ors a lot. What does that have to do with motivational interviewing? So send any questions my way and we will answer them. My email is Tammy, T-A-M-I dot Calais, C-A-L-A-I-S at IFIOC.com. So today's question All right, is, go. if this is, if MI is a clinical or professional tool, why are, why do we sometimes use it at IFIOC in, in like relationships or teaching classes on relationships? Okay. Huh. Because so, we know yes. about relating in it. <laughs> <laughs> we have a whole podcast on getting into this. So this is a loaded topic, it which is, is why totally the sigh. Loaded. Yeah, loaded topic. Um, well, honestly, I'll tell you where it originated from is when for all the years that I've trained and taught MI, and, and for both of you training and teaching as well too, on our even on an intro, a two-day intro to motivational interviewing training, I would say 80 to 85% of the time on day two, when we do check-in, at least one person's gonna say, I used this on my husband last night, or I used this my teenager <laughs> last night. So literally, after one day of learning, the first thing people are doing is going home and trying to use it on their spouse or use it on their children. Uh, <laughs> Which doesn't mean they're necessarily getting all the concepts, but they are trying. They trying. want to. Yeah. And they're really trying to integrate exactly. it into their life. Yeah, yeah. That's it. And it's the same thing that we, it's one of the things that triggers our writing reflex as well too, is when people are using it on someone else because mm -hmm. it's not to be used on someone. It's <laughs> a method of communication. So this really is it's a great question. This is how I kind of untangle some of the, I think, where people get cross-threaded with it. So I think when a naive brain, when they're going through an intro training, if the first thing their brain thinks is, I should be using this at home, mm -hmm. then I think, why wouldn't we look at that? Mm -hmm. the, so I'm going to do kind of the pros and cons are the ways that I know that people think in the MI world about why it's you either do or don't use mm -hmm. MI in that. So there's a generic thing, and this is in my world being raised as a therapist, as a social worker, is you never, like it, it was a bottom line ethical issue, you do not counsel family or friends. So you take that context and you think, well then you wouldn't use motivation with family or friends. Mm -hmm. And there's part of me that really, I could see the rationale in that when I first started training on motivational interviewing. Then as I got more immersed in motivational interviewing, the thing that struck me the most is motivation is a method of communication. And I think, well, we all communicate every, every day. day. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Verbally, non-verbally, strategically, non-strategically, to improve outcomes, to actually um, kind of nuclear option outcomes. I mean, we, we communicate every day, for good or for bad. <laughs> and, and I think that's where I started looking at 
those two combinations of things that never truly, I would say, without exaggerating, I'd say at least 85% of the people when we do check-in on day two, it comes up. I either I did this last night with my kids or I did yeah. this last night with my spouse. Um, and and usually it's either, oh my gosh, it really worked or, oh my gosh, that really didn't work. Or it's so hard. It's so yeah. hard, yeah. Um, and, and I think it just lends itself for a good conversation there. Yeah, and this was, oh my gosh, this was probably... I would say probably 15 years ago, mm-hmm. um, I was working, I was supervising a practicum student who was an adult, who was older than me actually, um, and she, Becky Bates, had started uh, this amazing organization in Spokane, Passages Family Support, uh, yeah. Volunteers of America, and they provide support for parents who have children who have significant emotional, behavioral, psychological struggles, mm-hmm. and so it's a, a parent-to-parent group. And, and as part of her master's, she's getting her master's and I was supervising that and I was, you know, kind of in the, my really starting to immerse myself in motivation and starting to train on it. She said, as part of my master's, can we develop a parenting program Mm -hmm. uh, and use MI as kind of the foundational course? Is there any reason we couldn't teach this to parents in terms of using this with their children? Yeah. And so uh, she and I sat down and we, we kind of worked out a 12 week, uh, or a 12 session, 12 week curriculum. So once a week, parents would get together and we do this 12 week session of yeah. basically learning stages of change, learning strategically responding, learning active listening and reflective listening and strategic reflections and and uh, empathy and guidance and focus and everything in MI and, and broke it down into kind of basically, you know, 12 sessions. And it was really effective and the parents were just really blown away that this like, wow, this nobody teaches. This is not how I learned how to do parenting. Yeah. And when you added that with equipoise and writing reflex, especially with incredibly difficult behaviors, on paper and as we taught it, it was a new construct that really helped parents that were struggling with difficult behaviors. Mm-hmm. It made sense. Mm-hmm. And so then I and it was still that balance between we don't counsel family and friends. You know, this is really a professional technique or professional tool, but I I think it is the bleeding heart social worker side of me that if I have a tool that's effective and efficient, why can't we teach it? And helpful. And ethical. And ethical, yeah. And (laughs) pro-social. Right. (laughs) Well, and I think that's the ethical part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder, is it ethical or not? But we know that it's it's an effective approach, and so what's the rationale for withholding that? Yeah. Um, And and, and we can literally, we can start splitting hairs and saying why there is dilemmas and why things are going on, but this is to answer the question why I kind of ventured into providing on that level. And the other thing that started to evolve on the relationship, so that was kind of the parenting side of, of where it started. And then on the relationship side, and all three of us can testify to, uh, attest to from our own experiences with this, is just the personal impact it had on my own life. Mm-hmm. About me learning to take responsibility for my own behavior first instead of projecting outside of myself in relationships. And it just, for me, it was such a core construct. and. In, in my professional world and in my personal world as a therapist, as a, a spouse, as a partner, as a friend, it was so profoundly helpful for me to really realize what do I get triggered by? Mm-hmm. How often does my writing reflex get triggered? And how often is it easier for me to blame other people because I'm not sure how I want to navigate this or I'm just agitated or annoyed or they've done something that triggers me mm-hmm. and I want to hold them accountable. And knowing that following through on any traditional response 
is not value added to the health or the growth of a relationship. Mm -hmm. And I thought, there's no reason not to be able to share the basic constructs. Yeah. So with the parenting side of it and the relationship side, it was looking at how much do I teach this to the fidelity of motivational interviewing mm -hmm. or how much do we deconstruct some of the core constructs that we teach in motivational interviewing that are value added for anyone that wants to learn a more effective, healthy method of communication. Yeah. So that's kind of the backdrop to if it's an MI clinical tool, why does IFIOC teach it as a relationship, a way of managing a relationship or a way of, of parenting? Well, and I will, I will just add to that, you know, as someone, again, who loves the process too, but why wouldn't we help people learn to listen better, sometimes differently than they typically listen? And just because someone takes a class, they're not going to absorb all the concepts within that class necessarily. Right. Right. But if they walk away having more awareness and mindfulness about what's coming out of their mouth, and then also becoming a slightly more in tune listener to what the other person is thinking or feeling. If if they they're not necessarily learning MI in that, right. mm -hmm. <laughs> but they're walking away with skillful, useful tools right. to use in their everyday. Right, mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. exactly it. Well, and, and so this gets into even further with doing MI too, somewhat. And yes. this versus is with them. Is it versus yes. with them. And and this is the parallel I see between the personal use or the professional use of motivational interviewing and the jokes or the things that trigger my writing reflects about people saying, well, it's just manipulation or it's motivational manipulation. And the way we teach the core construct and why we lean on it so heavy in, in our curriculum at IFIOC is part of this comes down to how attached are you to the outcome? Because for it to be motivational interviewing, there has to be a target behavior in one theory of MI, and yes. kind of the primary theory of MI. The way we've generalized that is, well, what's the person's values or goals or target behavior? Yes. What's the source of the issue? Now, where it gets more complex, professionally, we can rationalize it easier that it's, it's, um, it's less of our obligation to be attached to someone else's outcome we want to give informed choice. I mean, I think medical model is a little bit, on paper, a little bit better than behavioral health. Behavioral health, we tend to be a little more attached to outcomes. Yeah. If there's health and safety, in healthcare, there's a health and safety issues as well, too, which tends to trigger our writing reflex, which tends to make us more attached to their outcomes. Yeah. But we know that that doesn't help change behavior. Mm -hmm. So it's the same thing. What fits with the model, the way that we teach it and that supports it is you have to work on being detached from the outcome that you can't control. And if it's a behavior change method, you're trying to help that individual become more invested and attached to their own outcomes and their own goals. Yes. So you can see it seems like that's an easier proposition from a professional perspective because mm -hmm. it's not my life and I go home at the end of my nine to five job. Mm -hmm. um, but if it's your child or your spouse, we tend to be significantly more attached to those outcomes and we feel more righteous in being attached to those outcomes for very good reasons. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a really odd concept to think, you know, how can I, literally, the first times that I did parenting classes or relationship classes using MI as a construct is looking at me like well, I was an alien when people were saying, how do you expect us to detach from the outcomes of our children or of my marriage? Yeah. And what I would always follow up with is, 
do you believe you can control the outcomes of your children or your spouse? And how much effort or energy do you put into trying to control those outcomes? And what does that yield? It tends to yield a lot of chaos and confusion and frustration and polarization, which again is normal, but it's not healthy. Mm -hmm. And so- And do you wanna live that way? Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so again, the reason why we do structure so much of our curriculum this way is there is the way of being that we talk about with motivational learning. There's the theoretical and the philosophical backdrop and structure to motivational interviewing and if that's where you're operating from then you can learn a strategic response and a method of communication that makes it a more method of effective method of communication yeah what the complexity is in and again i this is why i see so much parallel between the two between perfect personal and professional is because the majority of professionals that we work with you can see how attached they get to the outcome mm -hmm. or the pendulum swings to the, far, the other direction where they've completely disassociated from the outcome because they're so burned out because they've tried controlling outcomes for so long, mm -hmm. which parallels parents in relationship, which is <laughs> they get so burned out and just, you know, I'm at my totally. wit's end. I'm done with this. I can't do this anymore. We've tried everything. Nothing yeah. works. And I just think, I bet you haven't tried this yeah. Um, yeah. because nobody teaches this because it's such, it's so counterintuitive yeah um, so again this is it's a I love this question about why if you're a professional if this is a professional method mm -hmm. why are you guys teaching this in in personal life and again it, it reinforces our way of looking at motivational learning is you're not doing am I on someone or to someone um, and I think most people think of a therapeutic technique that you're doing it on them or to them or a medical technique, you're doing it to them or on them. Yeah. And this is a method of communication between two people, yep. which just means it's a mindful method of communication. Yep. So yep. so again, we can split hairs and say why that's real or not real, or I can make a case for why we shouldn't use it that way. But this, to answer the question is why, at IFIOC, why I was, you know, leaned into this and, and continue to, you know, expand and explore this and deepen our coursework around using this in, in relationship or for parenting. And there's so many layers to what you just said, Casey. It's incredible because we actually have multiple podcasts on different things you've brought up and in there from mindful communication to ethical influence to all these things that if you haven't heard those, they're in our archives. Um, there's so much there. Yeah. But if you just start to walk into it and start to think with how, what what are we doing we're trying to be with people mm -hmm. in a way and being intentional about that way yes and that's really kind of if you're unintentional and you're being reactive more than proactive yes. in your in your conversation then don't expect to be all that aware on, on how to be with people mm -hmm. but all we're talking about as we've talked about in other podcasts and everything is raising our awareness level and then as you do that you probably start to notice emotions yeah. because we are more emotional beings than rational right. beings. We mm -hmm. can get into all the psychology around that. And as it becomes more emotionally difficult because we care, because we have compassion, then it's a matter of, well, gosh, with all that care and compassion, what do I do with that? Right. I, could, I could get righteous about it, which is what a lot of people do. I could get... Uh, sharing my stuff about it, which could be things yeah. like nonviolent communication or other models out there, or I could try this other approach. And we're offering another approach of how you shape your, it doesn't mean you can't use it with other things, Absolutely. but it means as you start to really shape your compassion of care, 
why not be more mindful to really help with that? Because then you could probably be that much more either connected, helpful, whatever it's going to be, right? But it just keeps getting more and more layered into, well, then if you're doing something, how is that ethical? Again, we have a whole podcast that dives into that. And then what are your intentions? We have a whole podcast that gets into that with if your intentions are to be in an MI way of being with someone, you're going to be unconditional and really trying to see that they're trying, that they really do care. You're not going to be trying to judge them. So there's so many layers that you could get into. But if you really are taking the spirit of MI, what Bill and Steve are talking about with making sure compassion is in there with your MI, inherently it's a way to see and be with people that can be so powerful and so ethical all at the same time. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for answering. Uh, Thank you guys for asking the question. Absolutely. Again, feel free to send any questions my way and we will answer that here at the IFIOC because we're hoping to provide the communication solution that will change your world. (laughs) All right. Thank you.